Well, amen. Who, who in their right mind would uh, study the book of Leviticus to kick off their second year of a church plan? Us. That's right. Us. We are in our right minds. But of all the books to choose, this doesn't seem the one uh, to be the one that would draw a crowd. Actually, it would be one that would probably d- disperse a qu- crowd quicker than others. Uh, because truth be told, uh, it may be, in, in some estimations, for some people, it would be considered the most boring to read or to listen to. It might be the least desirable to read. And it is, honestly, probably the most often skipped when you are reading the Bible through. If not, the one where you pause and struggle the most to get through. But did you know, or you might be surprised to know, that despite all of our troubles with the book... It is the sixth most often quoted book in the New Testament. And that's because it's really foundational to what we believe about. um, What we believe about Jesus and his work on our behalf. In other words, if we're going to understand what Christ has done for us, we need to understand and spend time. In the book of Leviticus. And that's why we're going to be there. Uh, when First when uh, asked why we were going to study. My first three responses were. Well we've committed ourselves to preach through the entire council. The whole council of God. We've also chosen to go Old Testament, New Testament. And we just finished Galatians. So we need an Old Testament book. And then I was really excited. And, and really wanted to walk through Hebrews together. And thought, well, because Hebrews is the New Testament commentary on Leviticus, let's do Leviticus first. But unfortunately, that seemed to almost be a a means to an end rather than an end in itself. So we're going to we're going to hike through Leviticus. And I say hike because we're not going to saunter, but we're also not going to sprint And it's going to be up and down and it's going to be over some difficult terrain at times. But the views and the destination will be well worth it. But now if someone asks me, why Leviticus? Here's my actual answer. And I want to thank Dr. Michael Morales in his book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, for bringing this into focus. But we're studying Leviticus because God's goal of creation and redemption... Was for for himself or for him to dwell with his people and for his people to dwell with him. That's been his goal all along. Uh, it's another way to put that would be the goal of creation and redemption is for his people to dwell with him in his dwelling. If I was going to quote, or I will quote Dr. Morales, he says specifically, the goal of creation and redemption is life with God in the house of God. And Leviticus does one very important thing in light of that, and that is it answers the question, how is that possible? How is it possible for you and me as his people to dwell with him? Now, ultimately, we already know, right? We know the answer. The answer is Jesus. 
And we're going to see that week after week after week. It's funny, I was asked this week, so when are you going to, when are you going to show everyone that, that the ceremonial law and the sacrifices all point to Jesus? As if I was going to wait till week 17. I said, every week. Every week we will see Christ. But along the way, we're going to have a better understanding of the gravity of the problem that had to be overcome and the overwhelming significance of the solution that God provided to overcome that problem. We're going to see what God has done so that we might live in the house of God both both presently and in the future. Over the next four months, we're going to see the holiness of God. We're going to see the extent of mankind's sin and misery that we had fallen into. We're going to see the inescapable need of our salvation. And we're going to see God's plan of provision and His fulfillment of that provision. But ultimately, we're going to see, we're going to study Leviticus that we might see and love Jesus more. And that is my prayer. It's going to, as I've already said, it's going to provide a framework. It's going to provide language for us to better understand what Christ has done for us. So with that said, if you're willing and able, I would like for you to stand in the honor of God's word. We're only going to read the first verse and the first six words of of verse two, because Matt has already read the entire chapter. But I would like us to stand in one more time here at Leviticus one, one and two. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. Would you, by your spirit, allow us to see and hear the richness of your story of redemption, of which you have graciously made us a part. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear Jesus the one to whom this passage points. And may we be changed from the inside out as a result. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Fortunately for us, both the length and the content of chapter 1 will allow us to go into some background uh, that will be very important for us as we set the stage for our study to come. So tonight our outline is going to look like this. There's an outline in the back of your bulletin. We're going to look at both uh, the context of the book, the call of God, And then lastly, the Christ of the Scriptures. So the context of the book, the call of God, and the Christ of the Scriptures. Let's begin with the context of the book. The first word, as you look at your text, the first word in the Hebrew text is the word and. And it might seem to be an insignificant place to start, but really what it says is that this, what is to come is more than simply this list of, of gory details and directions for the ceremonial and sacrificial system of the nation of Israel. What it's saying is that this is a continuation of the drama that began in Genesis and has moved through Leviticus. This is one narrative that's moving forward. And so what I would like to do is just explain as briefly as possible and as clearly where where we are in that narrative. I'm going to hit some larger chunks and then we'll flesh those out as we go through our study A little more carefully. But the story begins in Genesis 1 and and 2, of course, with the creation. God creates the world and everything in it, including man. He then tightens the focus and brings our focus into a place called Eden and plants a garden within that location. As after he plants the garden, he then creates man. He places man in that garden. 
And he gives him instructions. He says that this is a place for man to dwell with him. It's a dwelling with, which means more than just his presence being there. It's that there is going to, when we talk about dwelling, we're talking about the extent to which man engages and fellowships and communes with God. So we're talking about both his presence and that communion that takes place. And having placed man in the garden, he then lays out the rules And the expectations of what it will take to dwell in his presence, to be with him. The one key rule being, do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. He creates woman, he places her with man. And at that point, they have this opportunity to live happily ever after in the presence of God with each other in the garden. But unfortunately, the two question or doubt God's word. And they believe Satan's suggestion that despite the fact that God has been lavish in what he has given them, that somehow he's withholding something. He's holding back in some way. Not only that, but they're they're minimizing the consequences and the judgment that God has said will take place if they eat of the fruit. And so when they ate of the fruit, they immediately knew that they had made a mistake. They began to try to clothe themselves and to cover themselves and to hide from God. But God graciously calls out to them. God graciously questions them. And then God graciously pronounces a plan of remedy to fix the situation that they've created. And he shares with them how he is going to regain what they had lost by providing a seed or an offspring through the woman Who would make all things right. But the damage has been done. There were consequences that had to be experienced. And so they could no longer dwell with God. And a chasm had been created. Because that which is holy. Cannot dwell with that which is unholy. He who is holy. Cannot dwell with him who is unholy. And so God cast them out of the garden and to make sure that they don't re-enter and eat of the tree of life that would have caused them to forever live in a state separated from him he places the cherubim at the gate so that they can't re-enter and they go from this point and move east you'll as we read through this narrative they keep moving further and further east east of eden And along that journey, we we see the progression that moved farther and farther away from God's dwelling more and more into sin. And we see the progression through the flood and the ark and the Tower of Babel. And in Genesis chapter 12, we see God making a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, he says that he is he is promising Abraham a people. And out of that people is going to come that seed that God had promised Eve. That offspring. And so through Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob, the promise that the people become a nation. But the nation ends up in captivity. Because of that progression of sin. But although God's abiding presence had been absent, they weren't dwelling there in the garden with him. He was still with them. And in Exodus 6, we read that through Moses, God announces that he's going to redeem them. He's going to deliver them. He's going to deliver his people. 
And so once he delivers them, they come to Mount Sinai. And again, through Moses, he lays out, he calls Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai. And he, and he says, here's how I want my people to live in my presence. Now that I have redeemed them, this is how they should now live. And that brings us to Exodus 25. I told you there were going to be big chunks. We'll fill in gaps later. But in Exodus chapter 25, God instructs Moses to tell the people to build a tabernacle. Or a tent of meeting. And he says very specifically, I want you to do that, that I may dwell in their midst. Now the terms can be used interchangeably. We have tabernacle and tent of meeting. When the word tabernacle is used, it's, it's used to describe the place where God dwells, abides, and lives. But the tent of meeting describes the place or the location where the divine and human will interact. So we don't just have his presence, we have his presence communing and fellowshipping with his creation in the midst of that place. As one commentator said, he said, the tabernacle has a twofold theological meaning. It is first the dwelling of God, Yahweh's home. And secondly, it is also the way to God's house. That is the way to God himself, the way to engage with him. So stated differently, the tabernacle is not only God's house, the place of his presence, but it is the ordained way of approaching the divine presence. So here's what's going on. God is doing for the first time in history what he hadn't done since prior to the flood back in the garden. But then something interesting happens in Exodus 40, verse 34. If you turn just a page over, you may not even have to turn in your Bible. But in verse 34 of chapter 40, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, or the tabernacle. And then it says this, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. A crisis is created. A crisis is created because while God is now present and dwelling with dwelling in his earthly abode, there remains no way, no opportunity, no possibility for humanity to fellowship or even approach him safely. And so remember, the divide between holy and unholy is too great. The unholy cannot live with the holy. And the people are probably thinking, wait a minute. How's... Moses has been the only one that has been able to ascend into God's presence on Mount Sinai. Now he's unable to enter in. Now he can't enter into the tabernacle where God is present. What are we going to do if Moses can't? Who is? And that brings us to our text and the call of God. Leviticus 1, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Moses doesn't have to ascend anymore. The temple is at the, the tabernacle, I'm sorry, is at, at the base of Mount Sinai. The Lord is dwelling in that tabernacle and from the tabernacle, God calls. God is the one that takes initiative. God is the one that moves forward and 
God is the one who calls forth from it. And he prescribes, it's God who prescribes the remedy. It's God who describes what must be done and how it's going to be done. It's only through divine intervention and revelation that the mystery and the problem is going to be solved. And in the next seven chapters, he lays out for them the particular offerings and sacrifices that are described. The first five will describe them in terms of the people and the next two, six and seven will describe them in terms of the priests. And before we look at the particular sacrificial offering here in chapter 1, just a very quick and brief description of the tabernacle. It was a small rectangular building. It was covered with curtains and it was divided into two rooms. The most western room, the end of the tabernacle, was a small square room called the Holy of Holies, which held the Ark of the Covenant, which included the Ten Commandments within it. In the outer rectangle room, uh, uh, the rectangular room, uh, there was a table with showbread, the golden altar, a candelabra, or the, um, the menorah. Outside of that was a courtyard, and at the entrance of that courtyard, by the way, the, the entrance of the courtyard faced east, stood an altar of whole offering. Or burnt offering or the ascension offering. And that table was named that because the offering that we're looking at tonight in chapter 1 was the offering that was most common of all the Old Testament sacrifices. Because it was performed daily. It was performed daily by the priests both morning and evening. But it was also performed as needed by those who were, who were in need and who came to approach and to come to the tabernacle. You notice it says that when he, in verse 3, it says when he comes or when they come. It's because this was something that those, it wasn't just the priest that would come. This was offered to the people and it involved an animal from their flock. And it was... To be offered, it was it was costly to offer because it meant so much to them. It, the loss had to hurt a little bit. It was a male from their their flock. It was a um, unblemished animal from their flock. It was a bull or a goat, and of course, it was also could be a bird. And it, which it was, depended on the means of that particular family. All were to be able to approach. We know from the text that the bull or the goat had to be perfect and unblemished. As I've already said, the person offering would bring, would bring the animal to, to the priest at the table. But before they did anything with it, the individual would place his hands upon his head and lean hard into the animal. Pressing in, not softly or gently, but, but almost attempting to move the animal and and this we see occur many times in other sacrifices that we'll see coming up, coming up. And in many cases it was used as, as symbolism for the transference of the person's sin to the animal. But here that's not the case. Here it symbolized that they were identifying with the animal. This is not only my animal, but, but this is now me. This is me. In other words, this animal is a substitutionary, a vicarious substitute for me. It is standing in my place. And unlike other offerings, the person that brought it was very much involved. 
the person would actually be the one that would cut the animal's throat and drain the blood which the priest would catch. The person that brought it would skin the animal. The person that brought it would cut the animal up. The priest would prepare the... Again, we will see these differences in 1 to 5 and 6 to 7, but the priest would then take those things. That the, the person that brought it would wash the legs and wash the entrails and take care and get everything ready except for the fire. The priest would get the fire ready and then everything on everything about that animal other than the skin, I believe, would go on the fire. In the case of the bird, the priest would wring its neck and we're just given that description. We're not really told why. But the priest would take the blood and then would throw it over the altar, on the sides of the altar. The sacrificial offering didn't change, uh, didn't change a person's sinful nature. It didn't remove sin. Uh, this particular offering, there was no cleansing nature about it. It did atone for or pay the debt ransom that was the wage of sin. But the most important part of this sacrifice is that it was a soothing aroma that was pleasing to the Lord. It was pleasing to the Lord, which meant it propitiated the Lord. It appeased God's anger and restored the person. It restored God's anger upon the person. It restored fellowship with that person. And because the person brought the entire offering and laid the entire offering on the fire, other offerings will see that the person would keep some, the priest would take some. In this case, everything goes on the fire. And that symbolized the complete nature of man's sinfulness. It symbolized the need of thorough forgiveness. And it symbolized God's total claim on that person's life. Nothing was to be left out. So this, this was a daily, costly, personal, and substitutionary sacrifice that granted access to the Lord. See, this is why we can't divorce it from Genesis 6. What, what was not possible? Access had been cut off. Access is being restored through a sacrifice mediated by a priest. And in bringing the offering, the person would be acknowledging their sin and guilt. They would be turning to the Lord in faith, believing that they would gain access because of the sacrifice that was being provided. They would be expressing thankfulness to the Lord for that forgiveness. And then they would be resolving to live in a holy manner. Living in a manner worthy of their calling as the children of God. And that leads us to a question. And that question is, why didn't we perform a burnt offering before we came into this place tonight? Why wasn't there an altar? Why didn't we bring our animals from our flocks prior to entry into this place? It's because this and every sacrifice, this and every offering points to the Lord Jesus Christ. He points to Christ. Christ has fully and finally fulfilled each and every sacrifice on our behalf. 
through his cross. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 5, 2. He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, Jesus speaking, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 that we read earlier today, or tonight, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, it says, He has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. It is the Lord Jesus. It is because of him that our worship no longer includes bloody sacrifices. We don't have to offer bloody sacrifices. Our call is to offer spiritual sacrifices. We're called to to live sacrifices of praise, to use language from 1 Peter 2 and Hebrews 13. We're also to daily offer ourselves as living sacrifices, to use the language from Romans chapter 12. We, like the Israelites, are in need of daily atonement. We can't escape that. But the sacrifice and imperishable blood of Christ is sufficient for each and every one of our sins. It is His blood that has been spilt on our behalf. Our call is not to offer an animal sacrifice, but to come to Him in faith, resting in His work on our behalf, in His sacrifice of Himself for us. That perfect spotless lamb, our substitute in our place. And then we are to present ourselves daily as living sacrifices, laying down our wants, laying down our desires, laying down our lives, taking up our cross, walking in a manner worthy of our calling, loving and obeying our father and loving and serving our neighbor. As we've learned in Galatians, we've been set free for that. And so I want to take the last couple of minutes to to walk through four things that I think would be important for us to remember, not only tonight, but as we move ahead. First, I think it it would do us well to remember that this is why we believe that the Sabbath and our gathering on the Sabbath is so very important. Not just Leviticus, but but this narrative. Because after creation and calling everything good, the Lord rested. And He did what He didn't do on the prior six days. The seventh day, He rested and He set the day apart. He blessed it. And He consecrated it, sanctified it, and made it holy. Nothing, not what he had done prior. So in a very real sense, the pinnacle of creation is not humanity alone, but it's humanity in Sabbath communion with God. That's what's important to him. We are to keep the Sabbath holy. We don't make it holy. God made it holy. We do 
We do what we do the other six days, but we gather corporately. We are here tonight as his people because he has called us to worship. But we do this today because the day is set apart. And we are here not only to, to commune with one another, but more importantly, we're here to fellowship with and, and commune with, with God himself. We're here gathered in His presence. We don't gather to sing a few songs and to hear a nice motivational talk. We're here to meet with the Holy God. And none of us in here deserve that. He has made it so. Secondly, when we come to worship, it would do us well to remember that we are able to come and gather In the presence of the Lord, because we have a mediator greater than Moses and a great high priest that is greater and better than Aaron. He himself was not only the priest, he was also the sacrifice. We come through this, we we come into this room through his blood. I've been thinking about this all week. So many pictures we see on the internet and there are so many ways that doors to sanctuaries are adorned for people to walk into, most of which have nothing to do with why we're gathering. But there was a point in history when the doors were painted red. Because the people knew as they would come to worship that they were coming into God's presence through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the first two being said, I think it would do us well to remember that this is why we approach him the way we do in our worship. We approach him in this way because while we are able to come into his presence with singing and into his courts with praise. Let's remember the holy and unholy and how he has brought, he has bridged that chasm on our behalf. And we've been declared righteous. But we are still an unholy people. Sin remains. And we need to remember that we come into His presence with singing and His courts with praise. And we are to do that joyfully, but we should come seriously. We need to remember that we come thankfully, but thoughtfully. We remember that we come confidently, confident in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also come reverently. And we don't come as we want to or as we might prescribe. We come as He prescribes. We come in a way that glorifies Him rather than satisfy our own selfish preferences. And then finally, we we do well to remember that we are called to live in a manner worthy of our calling. We've heard it since Ephesians and through Galatians. That we are to live... In a manner worthy of our calling. We've been set apart as holy. We've been set apart for holy use. And we are now, Paul's language in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within us. In our walking in a manner worthy of that calling, we should be mindful of that in light of God's holiness, as well as in response to the mercy and grace that God has extended to us through The Lord Jesus. And that love He's expressed for us. And it's because of Christ that we now 
dwell in the presence of God and that we will live in the house of God forever. And I pray, I pray that that sink in so that each and every week we come and we realize that and we think that what we're walking through these next few months is a reminder of how that is possible and that we would understand that apart from Him we are nothing. Life with God in the house of God because of Christ. Amen. Let's pray.